0: So as Kevin said, my name is Jerry. I'm I'm the new guy. I'm the rookie here. So and we are excited to be here with you. Um, so a few weeks ago, my wife and I got to experience the joy and the excitement of shopping for a used car. Have you had Have you experienced this lately? Now we have nothing against used cars. We've only ever owned used cars. We've never had a car that's newer than eight years old. So we don't have anything against that. But this time we felt like our hand was being forced a little bit because out of nowhere, my Mazda decided to be huffing and puffing and chugging and the check engine light was flashing. And we knew that we were in trouble. But there's something you need to know about our Mazda. It's an 01 and it has 263,000 miles on it. So we've known, we're like, no, it's, it's on its last leg. It doesn't even have legs anymore, right? It's, it's done. So this, we've been talking about getting a new car, but we felt like the car was kind of forcing us into a spot. So we took it to the, the dealer, or not to the dealership, to the garage. And they were like, yeah, well, we can't get to it for the next day or so. So we had a really important conversation. How much money are we going to spend to keep that thing on the road? It had always run great, but we kind of thought we're probably done. And so we started scouring the local car lots and online and Craigslist to find a vehicle that's right for us. But here's something else you need to know. For the last eight months, probably, I've been trying to convince my wife that what our family really needs is a crew cab pickup truck. We already have a minivan. We have four kids. We need something that can cart six people. And it just seems responsible. It's a good compliment to the minivan to get a truck. And so I'm looking all over for a truck and I found one at a dealership about 30 minutes away. And I was really excited. I had a clean Carfax, one owner, no wrecks. It was black. I mean, it had everything going for it. And I went on a Saturday morning to take it for a quick spin. And after driving it, it was good. It was, I was excited, but my wife wasn't there with me. And it, kinda, it wasn't like at 100%. It really wasn't even at 80%. And so I was kind of hemming and hawing. And the, the sales rep said these magical words to me Saturday morning. He says, Why don't you take it on an extended test drive? Why don't you take it home? so your wife can see it? Why don't you cart your kids around all weekend and see if you like it? Come back on Monday and we'll talk. And I learned a valuable lesson as I pulled off the lot that day on my extended test drive. If you get to the place where you're willing to take a test drive, you better be ready to make a wise decision about whatever you're gonna do next. The whole way home, I kept thinking, is this responsible? I really want this truck. Is this good? Is this what I'm supposed to do? Or maybe we should just keep The vehicle that we have on the road right and we were going back and forth and back and forth and i got home and the kids celebrated and everybody was excited and i said don't get too excited right we don't know what's going to happen yet now there's nothing wrong with going on a test drive right if you're looking for something new something better or something different you want to go on a test drive it's a wise thing to go on a test drive or a trial run and we live in a culture that encourages us to do this all the time if you have netflix i'm going to guess they gave you the same deal they gave me right 30 days free try it for 30 days you should try it before you buy it and chances are if you try it you're going to buy it they know that right this is why ice cream stores have all those little white spoons come in we want you to have a free sample take as many as you want because we know you're going to buy two scoops and you're going to come back again with all your friends we do this at the beginning of the year with gym memberships and diets don't we i'm just going to try it to see if it works for me this is how i landed on a major in college i had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I tried a few things. I ended up in business and marketing and here I am as a pastor. So clearly that test drive worked great, right? Some of us approach dating this way. You think, you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet. How bad could one date hurt? And for some of us, it came out really well and we married that person and we're happy. And for others of us, it didn't work out so well. And you ended up marrying the person anyway. Now you gotta go to the marriage course, right? You need to learn how to take a better test drive. There is nothing wrong with taking a test drive, it's responsible. And if you're looking for something new, something better or something different, it's best to try it first. But I wanna ask you a question. I just want you to be honest. You don't have to answer out loud. Just be honest with yourself. Would you be willing to admit that to some degree or another, you've probably done the same thing when it comes to your relationship with God, but more specifically when it comes to following Jesus? And I'll, I'll just start off and say, I have. I've grown up in church my whole life. I've always believed that there's one God, that Jesus is his only son, that he died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believed all that. But in my early twenties, I kind of reached this place where I realized my faith is my parents' faith and I need my faith to be my faith. And so I went on a test drive and I started kicking the tires and I went to a different church and I started to investigate things. And I came to this point where I believed that Jesus was who he actually came to be, but I arrived there on my own. So maybe you can relate to that. Or some of us are professional test drivers because you've gone from church to church and group to group and thing to thing, and you love what Jesus has to offer, you're just waiting to hang out to see if there's something better coming. You want to see what next year's model is, right? You're not just willing to commit. You're not willing to commit just yet. But I'd be willing to bet if we went around the room, I bet there's some of us that are on a test drive for the very first time. And maybe you were drugged to church as a kid and you said, I'm never going back. But all of a sudden your life is blowing up and it's your way isn't working so well, and you're begging, you're like, I just want something new. I want something better. I want something different. What's this gonna look like? And so you've decided to investigate Jesus for yourself. Or maybe you've seen a changed life and a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, and you know that they keep talking about this Jesus guy and you think they're really weird, but it looks like they have something that you don't have. And so you thought, you know what? I gotta try it out. Well, if you can relate to that in any way, I have really good news. Because the first men that followed Jesus felt the same way. They asked the same questions. In fact, today we're gonna look at a very familiar story that you've probably heard before. You could tell me all the details of this story. But in this story, Jesus invites those first men to go with him on a test drive to a little village in Galilee called Cana. And here's the thing, their test drive experience was just like you and me. They got to a point where they had to make a decision about what they were going to do next. So last week we kicked off this series and we're calling it In the Flesh and it's based on John chapter 1, verse 14 that says this, the word became flesh, the word meaning Jesus, became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. And here's why this is so important for us here at Genesis because we would want you to know, if you don't know this already, we absolutely believe that Jesus is God. We make no bones about it. But we also believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. At one point, the eternal Jesus set aside the comforts of heaven and he was born as a helpless baby. He grew up as a boy. He lived as a man and he walked on this earth in the flesh. He experienced the highs and the lows of life. He knew what ridiculous humidity felt like, right? He knew what it was to lose a loved one. And so for the next several weeks, we're looking through the life of Jesus chronologically and we're saying, how did he do what he did and what can we learn from that. And here's why we think this is so important because Jesus coming in the flesh shows us just how close God really is. But it also shows that he's laid down a path for us to follow when we begin walking with Jesus. And last week we looked at John chapter one. We saw how Jesus met his first disciples. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I want you to turn to John chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles all around the room. Feel free to take one of those home with you today. You can turn to page 740. If you're not familiar with who this John guy is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament. And these are men that wrote biographies about Jesus's life. They tell us where he went, what he did, what he said. And so last week we were looking at the gospel of John and in that gospel, in John chapter one, we see how Jesus met these first few men. And apparently these two men, They were, the disciples of John the Baptist, they were looking for something new, better or different spiritually. They were really curious. And they had heard some pretty amazing things about Jesus. So they begin to engage him in a conversation. In Jesus, this is what we talked about last week. Jesus asked them this really pointed question. He says, what are you seeking to find when you come to me? What are you seeking to find? What is the aim of your life? And the more they talked, they were curious about the claims about Jesus. So he just said, hey, why don't you come and see? If you think that I have something to offer, why don't you come and see? And here's what happens in John chapter one, this little phrase, the next day, the next day, the next day, it's repeated three different times. And what we get to see in the gospel of John is a three day, this, 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 and this happened. So we get to see what the first few days with Jesus was like for these men. And so he meets two one day, the next day he meets two more, and the next day, two more guys are there. And so after three days, there's five or six guys. Jesus has his own little men's small group. And these guys are curious. And they're asking him questions. And then look at how John chapter two begins. John chapter two, verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now it starts on the third day. Some translations say three days later. So essentially we can say that this is the first week of Jesus's ministry with these men. They barely know him there's a wedding taking place in this little village. And Jesus says, hey, why don't you come on me with an extended test drive? You're curious, you've heard some things, let's go, let's talk. Now, last week we introduced this map of of Israel. And this is important because he's going to this village in Cana and you'll notice when Jesus was baptized or when John the Baptist was baptizing, he was down here in the wilderness, down here at Bethany beyond the Jordan. And they're traveling up to this village in Cana. So they, they take off on this walk with these disciples. And you'll notice that Cana is very close to this little village called Nazareth, this is where Jesus grew up. And here's why it's believed that this is so important. It's possible that Mary's family, Jesus's mother, was from this village in Cana. In fact, there's an instance where Jesus returns to Cana later. And at this wedding, it seems that Mary has a role to play in what's going on. And so it's safe to say that maybe Jesus was inviting these men to his cousin's wedding. Now, some of you have heard this story before. And you could probably stand up and recite it and get 80% accurate, that's great. Here's what I want you to do though. I want you to envision this story with fresh eyes. I want you to see this story from the eyes of those men that are just starting to walk with Jesus. I'm just gonna read the story real quick. Pay attention to the details. Who was there? What was going on? What was the issue that they were up against? It starts like this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Now I love this story, it's written by John, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. He was there at this party and he gives us a story of what happened. And there's so many little details, but did you pick up on the fact how many different groups of people were mentioned? There's seven different individuals or groups of people. There's Mary, there's Jesus, there's the disciples, there's the servants, there's the master of the banquet, there's the bridegroom, and then there's all the other partygoers. Now we don't know how many people that is, We just know that there's a wedding and apparently there was a problem because verse three says, when the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, it's easy to look at this and think maybe Mary was saying, hey, you guys got here too late, all the wine's gone. That's not what she's saying. She's pointing to the fact that there's a problem. And here's why we know this. For us, a wedding is a one day event that might span seven hours from beginning to end after the reception's over, right? In this culture, at that time, a wedding was a seven-day celebration. And the host would invite everybody he could to come to this wedding. But get this, the host was responsible to provide his guest with adequate wine for all seven days. These people took their parties very, very seriously. And to run out of wine could cost your family honor and social status. In fact, you could even be fined. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that, but just think about this. What if you were invited to a wedding on a Friday night and you're rushing home from work to get, and they say, hey, come, we're gonna have dinner at 6.30. And you show up at 6.30, you've taken a shower, you're wearing your best clothes, you come carting a gift, and there's 200 people there, and the bride and the groom have only provided Taco Bell for 50 people. You're upset, you're thinking, really, Taco Bell? There's 200 of us, and you're probably taking your gift home with you, right? And you're like, good luck in your marriage, You're dead to me. I'm never gonna see you again, right? You're upset. The people at the party, they expected. They expected to have wine for all seven days. Now, apparently Mary, this is where we think that Mary had a role to play because she comes to Jesus and she says, now she doesn't ask for anything. She simply says, they have no more wine. She's not necessarily asking Jesus to do a miracle, but you wonder if she's not looking at him saying, hey, Jesus, we got a little problem. Your cousin didn't prepare very well. They don't have any more wine. I've got a problem, son. Can you help me solve this problem? Now, I want you to imagine that you're Mary. We know that Jesus is 30 years old. We learned this in one of the other gospels at this point. And for 30 years, you've been sitting back and you've been waiting for your son's potential to be unleashed. And you remember an angel coming to you in a dream and saying, you are going to give birth to the son of God. And you remember seeing other angels in dreams that say you need to get up and you need to go to Egypt. I mean, everything that happens in this boy's life is special or different in some way. And in Luke 2, we read this phrase, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and she thought about them often. And I have to imagine that for 30 years, she's been saying, God, when? When, is it, when are people gonna know how special my boy is? And so maybe in faith, Mary is saying, hey Jesus, wink, wink, we got a problem. Can you help? Now I love Jesus's response in verse four. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. I am 39 years old. If I referred to my mother as woman, (laughs) it ain't gonna go well, right? It ain't gonna go well. And it sounds like Jesus is being disrespectful here, but actually it's a polite phrase. Similar to ma'am. In fact, Jesus uses this same word in address to Mary when he's hanging on the cross and Mary's standing right here. And here is John the disciple that wrote the gospel of John. And she, he looks down and says, woman, this is now your son. Son, this is now your mother. It's a tender word. Jesus isn't being rude here. But at the same time, look at what he says. Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we've been reading this story at our house for the last week or so, and I've been telling my kids, hey, what questions do you have? And my oldest son, I love this, he said, now when Jesus says my hour has not yet come, does that mean he's not 21 and he can't actually change the water to wine? I thought, I thought, that's good. That's really good. That's not what it means, but it's really good. I think maybe what Jesus is communicating here to Mary is he's saying, Mary, our mother, our woman, I am under the daily guidance and direction of my father. I I live in complete obedience to him. My time has not yet come. If I did a miracle like this publicly, it might confuse people to ask who I really am and why I really came. And mom, by the way, once my ministry, once it gains momentum, it's gonna be hard to slow things down. How many of you have ever rented a movie from Amazon Prime? If you've ever rented a movie from Amazon Prime, you know the deal, right? Once you hit rent, you have 30 days to watch the movie. But once you start watching the movie, you have 24 hours to finish it. The timetable begins. And maybe that's the point that Jesus is making here. Hey, mom, I would really love to help you. But this this ministry, it ends in a very definite way at a very definite time. But look how Mary responds in verse five. His mother said to the servants, so now we've got some new people there, do whatever he tells you. Now I'm gonna read into this a little bit. I think this is where Mary gives Jesus the mom look. You know the mom look? <laughs> the stare and the glare. And I think, she looks at the, I think she's looking at Jesus, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, the time's like, okay, good. I want you to do whatever he says. And then she looks at him like, I've been waiting 30 years for this. Now that's just me, I don't know. My mom might have done that a time or two to me, right? I'm a parent, I do that with my kids. I think Mary is expressing her faith and saying, I trust him, whatever, whatever he says to do, I want, you, I want you to do it. Now I want you to stop and take a step back and think about those disciples. You've only known this guy for like maybe six days, maybe. He invites you to go to his cousin's wedding and right away, my wife has taught me this. Hey Jesus, did you fill out the RSVP card to say that we were coming? Because if not, that's a really big deal. People are not happy when you bring extra guests to the wedding and they're already out of food and wine. This is not good, Jesus. And I'm kind of wanting to back out the back door. And then I've seen this interaction with Jesus and his mom and I'm just feeling awkward. I want to get out of the room. And then I start to ask the question. I'm looking at Mary and thinking, we just got here. Like, what could he possibly, what could you possibly expect him to do? Well, look at what he does. Verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. These weren't drinking containers. These were washing containers. They were, they were clean, but you didn't use them for drinking. And each of them held 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so they filled them to the brim. Now I did a little research this week and I learned that one gallon of water weighs 8.34 pounds. And these things hold 20 to 30 gallons each on top of whatever they weighed already. That's like 180 to 250 pounds of water. That's a big, big jar of water and there's six of them. And now you're a servant and Jesus says, hey, go fetch me some water. I don't even know how, it, it takes us like a day to fill up our 250 gallon baptistry right here. I don't even know how long this would take these guys to do. So imagine that you're these servants and you're fetching water and the party's going on and you know it's getting ready to get bad. and you, You're just doing whatever you're doing because Mary, was not happy and she said, do whatever he says and you're doing it and you get done and you're like, oh my gosh, I am worn out. Can I just go sit down? And then Jesus hands you a ladle and look at what he says. Now draw some out and take some to the master of the banquet. And here's what you need to know about the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet, his role was to officiate the wedding. It was his responsibility to taste all the food and wine before anybody else got to it. But it was also his responsibility to make sure that there was enough wine for everybody for all those seven days. And so if I'm the servant, it feels like Jesus is passive aggressively picking a fight with the guy who's responsible. Hey, can you take that guy a drink of water? Here you go. And just imagine what it would be like to be the servant and you dip it out and you look at it and it's water and you're walking and you're thinking, what am I doing? What? What is what, ha- what just happened? And you hold it up, and this guy says, Who, what are you doing? That guy, he told me to bring this you. Who is that guy? He used to be a carpenter, now he's a rabbi. I don't know, his mom's mad. Just, would you drink this? It would make him feel better. It'd get her off our back. Just, would you? just imagine being that. This guy, this unnamed servant has become my favorite person in this story. He's just doing what he's told. And he, I picture him like this. And look what happens. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he calls the bridegroom over. And if you're the servant, you're thinking, oh, I'm done. I need this job. And then they, they like there's this brah. And you're thinking, I'm, I'm just gonna go pack my stuff and leave. And all of a sudden, the master of the banquet says, everyone brings out the choice wine and then the cheaper wine. And after the guests have had too much to drink, They bring out the the worst wine, but you've saved the best until now. And obviously the master of the banquet had no idea what had happened because he credits the bridegroom. And just like that, the crisis is diverted. By the way, I've heard it said that this is the equivalent of 757 bottles of wine. And this isn't like two buck truck from Trader Joe's or the, the stuff you get in a cardboard box from Kroger. This is possibly the best wine that has ever been on planet earth. And I just picture the party getting a lot better. The DJ cranks the music, the bass is pumping, everybody's excited. The master of ceremonies gets to keep his job. The bridegroom, it's his wedding night, he's happy, right? And all the other party goers are thinking, this is really good stuff. And then I want you to imagine what it would have been like in the servant's quarters. Mary's over in the corner and she is smiling from ear to ear. I knew he could do it. Finally, finally someone gets to see how special my boy is. And then there's the servants and the disciples. I just picture these guys in stunned amazement, looking at each other like, did you do something? No, it's just water. I have no idea. I gave it to the guy. It was, I saw that it was water. Imagine being those disciples. You've only known him for a few days. He invites you on a test drive to come and see. And now you have seen and witnessed something with your eyes. You've been looking for something new, something better, something different, and he's standing right in front of you. And now they're at their decision point. Based on what I just saw, what is the wisest thing for me to do next? We'll look at how John ends this story. Verse 11, what Jesus did here at Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him, believed in him. Now in John chapter one, two of these guys had told two of their friends, we have found the one. We have found the one that Moses told about. We have found the one promised in the Old Testament. They, believe, they, they thought, but now it says they believe. And we don't know much about these guys other than they were just willing to join Jesus on this test drive. But what were they gonna do next? Would they just slap on the label of believer? Go to work on Monday and say, guys, you have no idea. I went to a crazy wedding this week and you wouldn't even believe what happened. You had to be there to see it. Or were they gonna lean into this relationship? What were they gonna do with Jesus next? Look at verse 12. After the wedding, Jesus went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brother and his disciples. Now that they believed in Jesus, they were putting their faith in motion by staying with Jesus. When Jesus invited them on a test drive, he wasn't asking them to have blind faith. Instead, he was making an intentional effort to get to know them so that in the end, they could make an informed decision on their own. And maybe for the first time in their lives, these fishermen, who had been wanting to see God move in their life for the first time, they saw, they believed, and they were starting to put their belief into motion. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've believed for a while, but you've never really done anything with it. You've never really taken a step. You just say, well, I'm a believer. Sister's says are still right there. I be- oh sure, he's coming again, that's great. Maybe the biggest lesson we can learn from these men from this story is that Jesus doesn't call us to have a blind faith, but our faith in Jesus requires a response to him. Jesus doesn't call us to have a blind faith. He gives us things to see. He gives us experiences that we can lean on, but our faith in Jesus requires a response to him. Maybe another way to think about this is that our faith isn't blind, but it does need to be seen. It needs to be lived out. Now, do you think that those guys knew what they were signing up for when they said, oh, I believe? I don't think they did. Jot this down. This week, go read John 2 verses 12 through 24. Probably another story that you've heard happens next in the the gospel of John. They go to the most holy city, Jerusalem. They go to the most holy place, the temple, and Jesus makes a whip, picks a fight, makes a scene and drives people out of the temple. And whatever little faith these guys have, they were gonna need it because it just got real. I don't think they knew that Jesus was gonna die. I don't think they knew that he was gonna raise from the dead. They just knew they had witnessed something with their eyes and the wisest thing was gonna be to follow them with their lives. They began exercising their faith because of what they had seen. And maybe this was a new concept for them. Maybe it's a new concept for us. But the writer of Hebrews, he wrote about this for us specifically. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, let's listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about faith. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us the assurance about the things that we cannot see. And listen to this. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. Now, who are the people in the days of old? He's talking about all the Old Testament heroes. The, the stories that you and I tell our kids at night when we say, Hey, let me tell you about Noah. Let me tell you about Moses. And here's how we know this because the writer of Hebrews goes on in, in chapter 11, and on 20 different occasions, he uses this phrase, by faith, by faith. And this is how he uses it. He says, By faith, Noah had never seen it rain. But by faith, he built a boat because God said it was going to, and he wanted to save his family. And by faith, Abraham, whose father was an idol maker, who didn't believe in the one true God, Abraham trusted God and went to a land he had never been to before. And by faith, Abraham, who had never had a child, believed that God would make him the father of many nations. And by faith, Abel and Enoch, and by faith, Sarah and Isaac and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and David and Samuel. By faith, by faith, by faith, these Old Testament heroes responded to whatever God called them to, because what they had seen him do. And listen to what verse 13 says about them. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and they welcomed it. Verse 33 says this, by faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice and they received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the flames of fire and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle. They put whole armies to flight. Others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. And then listen to this phrase. They placed their faith, they placed their hope in a better life after resurrection. Those first few men that were following Jesus, they witnessed him change water to wine. And then three years later, they would see the most amazing miracle ever. Jesus promised that it would happen. He rose from the dead, and all of a sudden they knew this life isn't it. We get to participate here, but this isn't it. There's more to come. That's why we share communion. That's why we worship Jesus, because he's not dead, he's alive. And I wonder, I wonder if the writer of Hebrews thought, you know, maybe I should include those guys in Hebrews 11. What if, that freight, what if he would have written this? Those first few men witnessed Jesus, Jesus change water to wine, and by faith, they began to follow him wherever he led them to next. And so here's a question. What does this have to do with me and you? I mean, this was 2,000 years ago. Is there anything that we can learn from this story? Well, here's my question for you. Have you ever witnessed Jesus change water to wine? Have you ever been in a chaotic situation and you prayed, oh God, let there be peace, and somehow there was peace? Have you ever been up against impossible odds and you said, please get me out of here? I need protection, I need strength. And all of a sudden, when you walked away, you thought, I don't, I don't know what just happened. Have you ever seen a life that was changed? Someone whose life is an absolute mess. They're unbearable to be around. And all of a sudden, they come in contact with Jesus and water's changed to wine. And maybe that life is your life. But here's the thing, if you've seen that, you probably have a little bit of faith. But have you ever put that little bit of faith into motion? I struggle with that. We don't have to have a lot of faith. But it's what we do with the little bit of faith that we have. So I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine what could be written about us, about you and me. If we began to follow the example of these men, and we actually put the little bit of faith in Jesus into motion in really practical ways every day. And by faith, we began to pray for eyes to see him at work and a willingness to respond in obedience. And by faith, we started to live as men and women who actually lived out what we believed to be true about Jesus. And by faith, we became the husbands and the wives that God has called us to be. And by faith, we began to parent our children with greater intentionality and point them towards Jesus. And by faith, we worked with integrity every day when we went to work, no matter who we worked with, no matter what we did, no matter how much we hated it, by faith, we showed up and said, "'Lord, what do you have for me today?' What if by faith, we started loving our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and even our enemies the way that Jesus loved the rest of the world? Even when they said, I don't want any part of it. And they refused to reciprocate. What if by faith, the people in this room, the people of Genesis Church, what if we all said, I'm gonna step into the family and I'm gonna use whatever gift God has given me, great or small," And what if by faith, we put the love of God on display as the host team or whatever we're gonna do with children and then when we go out there we just say we're followers of Jesus this is just what we do and by faith we say God you do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine or what if by faith what if by faith you've been coming here for weeks and your heart beats fast every time you hear us sing a song and you tear up but you've never stepped across that line what if by faith today was the day that you said I've seen this much I'm willing to take the next step. Jesus, I'm willing to go wherever you call me to next. I want you to imagine what could happen in your home, in my home, in your neighborhood, in your school, in Hamilton County and around the world. If just here at Genesis Church, if just here we decided that by faith we were going to follow the man that changed water to wine, we were going to follow the man that rose from the dead. And we were just gonna do ridiculous things because he said it was possible. And it wasn't for us, it was all for him. Jesus didn't call those first disciples to have a blind faith in him, but he did challenge them to respond with the little bit of faith that they did have. Last week, Jesus asked those men this question, what are you seeking to find? And I think this week, he's saying, what are you gonna do next? So what's your response? Let's pray. Jesus, we believe that you are who you say you are. And we believe that you've done what only you could do. We believe that you're eternal, that you're God, that you've always existed. But we believe that you veiled your deity and you came to this earth as a man. And you struggled and you lived in obscurity, but you lived in obedience to your father. And we believe have risen from the dead and we believe that you will return again would you help us to take the little bit of faith that we have the little bit of faith and by the power of your spirit that we would make your name great that people would not be able to resist what you're doing by faith would you help us to be a people that follow you wherever you lead us next and we trust no matter what happens to us that we will get to spend the next moment I love you, Father.